Father, we have come here hungry. Some of us don't even know how hungry we are, Lord. And the only feast that's going to satisfy us is your word. I pray, God, that you would speak to us truths unchanged from the dawn of time, carried on through, uh, through all the centuries to arrive with us today. God, help us to see what's there. Help us to reflect on what's true. And ultimately, God, let us, let us see more of you so that we can glorify you better with our lives. In Jesus' name, amen. amen. All right. Am I on? If I flick this. I don't know if I'm on. <laughs> I am? Okay, good. All right. Well, that's good. Oh, there we go. Now I hear myself. I don't like it, but I can hear myself. Well, uh, I, uh, I have the pleasure of preaching here on Palm Sunday. Um, for those of you that don't know me, like Carla, uh, I'm Scott. Um, so, uh, I, <laughs> we've been going through Acts, so I'm not doing a Palm Sunday sermon, but I do want to point out that uh, where we are in Acts is 50 days after Jesus' resurrection. So that would be, if my math is right, and I'm a pastor, I'm not really that great at math, but somewhere between 50, 54 and 53 days before, uh, before Jesus' death. No, no, that's not right. I'm sorry, 57 days. Am I, am I close? Anyway, doesn't matter. Uh, you know, it's only like less than two months later. So, <laughs> so um, it's the same crowd that was screaming, Hosanna, Hosanna, that was also shouting, crucify him, crucify him. And it's a similar crowd that had come for the day of Pentecost who came and were hearing this miraculous moment of when these 120-some-odd these disciples of Jesus were proclaiming the glories of God in languages that were not their own, in Coptic, in Syrian, or Syriac, in, uh, in, in Latin. These uneducated fishermen, carpenters, these silly Jerusalem Jews were able to do this. So I want you to keep that in mind. Palm Sunday, the crowds, they saw all these things happen. And they wondered what was going on. Uh, the Feast of Pentecost, by the way, I need to correct something I said wrong uh, to a few of you. Some say that Pentecost was to celebrate the giving of the law to Moses at Mount Sinai, but there's actually no record in the first century of that. Um, in the, uh, we, we don't have a record of that until the second century, so it could be that the Jews responded to the Christians celebrating Pentecost as the coming of grace to say, well, we're going to celebrate the law. That would sound quite pharisaical. So... Um, uh, but the Feast of Pentecost was a festival of first fruits of harvest to God. Jesus' last command to his disciples was to wait for, for the, uh, the next time or season that the Father has fixed by his own authority in Acts 1. And they will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon them and they will be Jesus' witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. That's Acts 1, 7-8. It's a chapter before, but it was like a, a, year, a year before now with how we're going now at the pace of preaching through Acts. I'm just kidding. Um, 
So then, then the Holy Spirit does come about 10 days after Jesus ascends, after Jesus sends that, or says that. Uh, if you want to double, if you want to fact check me, Acts 1, 3 and Acts 2, 1 give clues to the timing. Um, and it, it, the, um, when the Holy Spirit does come, he gives the disciples the ability to speak these language that are not, not native to them. And they begin announcing the mighty works of God, Acts 2, 11. So that's what's happening. That's the setting, right? Holy Spirit has come. These 120 men are going into these, the, this crowd of potentially about 10,000 uh, dispersed Jews that had, uh, that had come and fled to Jerusalem. Most of them were, were now just moving to Jerusalem, even though they had grown up in some foreign country. And they walk in and uh, they, they, they find... <laughs> they, they find everybody calling a guy Messiah, and then a few days later, crucifying him. And then, you know, less than two months later, these same people that were following this guy are now speaking languages that are not native to them. I mean, just imagine, just imagine being one of those guys. Like, you, you just moved here two months ago. What a wacky town. <laughs> like, you're just, you're just seeing all this happen. And then you've got the scoffers in the crowd, because there's always the scoffers. And I'll confess, I am often a scoffer, so I can completely imagine saying this. But they're, they're like, these guys are just drunk. Uh, they're just drunk with new wine, the really alcoholic stuff. And so Peter stands up and begins, begins preaching to them, right? He begins announcing, proclaiming, uh, 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 crying out to them. And he says, it's only nine in the morning. It's too early for people to get drunk. It's only the third hour of the day. That's 9 a.m. ish. So Peter explains what they're witnessing, or that they're witnessing the beginning of the last days, the last period of time, the last epoch, E-P-O-C-H, of time uh, before all God's promises culminate, they come together. And like John preached last week, uh, he, he uses a passage of Joel 2 to highlight these events. Um, and it shall come to pass that everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved, is how he ends this, this uh, intro to his sermon. So what a sermon illustration, right? Uh, you stand up and, you're, and he stands up and he goes, goes, guys, 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 they're not drunk. This was promised in the Bible. Not drunkenness, but the coming of the Holy Spirit. Don't you remember from the prophet Joel that this was to happen? I never, I, I never expect my sermons to start that way, but sometimes my kids uh, act crazy, so maybe... Maybe I can use them one of these times as I see a hand waving. <laughs> um, so our, our purpose, our, our point today is to explore the message of Peter's sermon and really see its relevance for us today. Um, like I said, the, the, when he goes through Joel, it's kind of like his sermon introduction, um, his sermon illustration. And it culminates in, in a, a real festival of Pentecost. A real gathering of the first fruits, the fruits, the harvest of God's people. So I'm going to read the rest of the sermon, Acts 2, 21 to 41. So buckle up. Uh, it's, it's a lot of reading. This is, this is Peter, uh, starting in verse 21. And it shall come to pass that everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. Men of Israel, hear these words. 
Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves know, this Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. God raised him up, loosing the pangs of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. For David says concerning him, I saw the Lord always before me, for he is at my right hand that I may not be shaken. Therefore, my heart was glad and my tongue rejoiced. My flesh also will dwell in hope. For you will not abandon my soul to Hades or let your Holy One see corruption. You have made known to me the paths of life. You will make me full of gladness with your presence." Brothers, I may say to you with confidence about the patriarch David that he both died and was buried, and his tomb is with us to this day. Being therefore a prophet and knowing that God had sworn with an oath to him that he would set one of his descendants on his throne, he foresaw and spoke about the resurrection of the Christ that he was not abandoned to Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption. This Jesus God raised up, and of that we are all witnesses, being therefore exalted at the right hand of God and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he has poured out this that you yourselves are seeing and hearing. For David did not ascend into the heavens, but he himself says, The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. Now when they heard this, they were cut to the heart. And Peter uh, and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, brothers, what shall we do? And Peter said to them, repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promise is for you and for your children and all who are far off, everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. And with many other words, he bore witness and continued to exhort them, saying, Save yourselves from this crooked generation. So those who received his word were baptized, and there were added that day about 3,000 souls. This is the word of the Lord. What a sermon. Just to provide kind of a, 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 a list of the sermon points of Peter there. You've got, you've got the introduction again, which is these people are not drunk. They're speaking in real languages and they're empowered by the Holy Spirit to do it. Then he talks about Jesus as, as Messiah and Lord, which is a loaded term. Hosanna, Hosanna, they cry out on, the, on, on uh, Palm Sunday. They're saying the Messiah has come. The Messiah has come. He says, essentially, you've heard of Jesus. Many of you even saw uh, God do mighty and miraculous works during his er earthly ministry. You saw the blind receive sight, the, the deaf hear, the sick healed, the dead raised. People had probably heard of Lazarus. 
who Jesus rose from the dead in John 11. Or maybe they had seen someone else who rose from the dead when Jesus did. At the, uh, in Matthew 27, Matthew 27 52, we hear that when Jesus raises from the dead, a whole bunch of other saints, meaning, meaning people who had trusted in Jesus and, and, rose, uh, and, and uh, been saved, they rose from the grave too. Imagine you bury your grandpa, and then uh, and, and and he was talking about this Jesus cat before he died, and it's and and you bury him, and you're like, well, at least I'm done hearing about that guy. But then your grandpa comes strolling in a week later. And he's like, hey, <laughs> what what do you do? <laughs> So then he talks about the crucifixion and resurrection of Jesus. He says, essentially, you killed him, but that was God's plan. You killed him, but God rose him from the dead. He loosed the pangs of death. Every person there somehow was somehow a witness to the resurrection power of Jesus. Uh, every, every person who heard knew of this, whether, whether uh, directly or indirectly, whether through evidence, visible sight, or rumor, or, or gossip. But the apostles were all true eyewitnesses, right? Jesus had just been spending um, a couple dozen days with the various apostles, teaching them and helping them understand. And then uh, Peter goes on and says, David prophesied of God's holy one not seeing corruption, and this was obviously not David because he died. And then David even prophesied of Jesus' ascension and exaltation to the right hand of God his Father, sitting at the right hand of God the Father, right? So that's, that's Peter's sermon in a nutshell. What, what happens? These people hear it, and then they are cut to the heart. I love that phrase, that moment of sheer conviction, the weight of your sin setting on you, and you realize, wow, I, I'm, I'm, I'm wounded. When the gospel is preached, God is the one who makes it effective. The 3,000 who turned were the ones that the Lord cut to the heart. They hadn't received the gift of the Holy Spirit, but they had started receiving the work of the Spirit. They were being regenerated. They were being brought from death to life. They were in their own hearts recognizing that resurrection power of Jesus. That same power that when you first came to Christ also experienced. That may feel like a faint memory. It may feel like it happened over the course of years or decades but you have experienced that same resurrection power, that cut to the heart, and then that I need to follow this Jesus. They needed to repent. They needed to turn away from, to cease from their sin and be baptized. That's what Peter tells them to do. And that's really the necessary response to the gospel being proclaimed. When, you, when a person hears the gospel, when, they, when, it, when it cuts them to the heart, they realize, I need to stop sinning and I need to be baptized because I too want to be identified with Jesus. I want to have a public declaration of my faith with the work of Jesus Christ and his death, burial, and resurrection. And in, in my, my sin being poured out and his righteousness covering me. It's worth also noting that the sermon didn't end at the closing remarks, right? Peter continued to engage the people and exhort them to flee from the crookedness of that generation. 
Sermons don't end when the final songs are song, sung, but also in the engagements afterward. That's a, that's a reminder for us pastors, right? Uh, there's the old, the old habit of, uh, of pastors at the end of the sermon where they go back to the back of the room and they shake hands with everybody as they leave. COVID shot that one, but uh, nobody wants to shake hands with me. But, <laughs> but being able to greet and talk to people and pray with people and have, have people come up and, and say things like, you know, pastor, I, I, I could use some prayer this week. That's one of the greatest gifts a pastor can have. This sermon that Peter preached was the first gospel sermon. It was the first sermon with a call to repentance, with, with the promise of new life with, the, with, with, with the, 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 the glories of Christ expounded for people. Ultimately, it was a gift of the Holy Spirit through Peter. It laid the foundation, actually, for Christian preaching and, and faithfully knowing the message and meaning of God's word. Uh, it, it actually set, like, if you, if you read it, if you read it real carefully, you'll notice that the, the outline of that sermon is basically every good sermon you're ever going to hear. It's, it, it's a standard of, uh, the, his sermon sets the standard of requirement for God-empowered preaching to be based on a logical and thorough understanding of what the text means. A good sermon application is never divorced from the text. It's always right there. Otherwise, you're going to a TED Talk. And three people know what that is. Um, but his sermon also set the standard uh, of practice for the church, right? To include forgiveness, repentance, contrition, and to celebrate God's work with baptism. In, in the history of the church, you always see that. You see this, not, it's not so much a formula, but it's almost like a recipe, where, where these things are included. When we say that a, a sermon is gospel-centered, it means that we recognize that the gospel is the core of, a, of, a, of that sermon. A gospel sermon is a sermon which is the gospel. What, what does the gospel include? It includes forgiveness, repentance, contrition, and a celebration of God's work. When we read the words of this sermon, you know, we might be tempted to think about this as just like a piece of history, too. We can read it and we can say, yeah, that's a lot of good facts and everything, but, but isn't it, how, how is that relevant to me today? I mean, Luke even starts the book of Acts saying, dear Theophilus, I wrote to you before, I'm writing to you again, this is what has happened. It's a book of history. And history's boring, Right? If it weren't for documentaries, there would be uh, no reason to care about history at all, right? Um, I, think, I think in my lifetime, I've probably seen at least 50% of the World War II documentaries in existence. I'm always surprised that they come out with another. Anyway, but, but, but the reality is that that's, that couldn't be further from the truth. This message from Peter needs to carry to us today. We, uh, we are, as Peter announced, those who still receive the promise. For the promise is for you and for your children and all who are far off, everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. That's the gospel. The Lord reaching through death and pulling out 
those that are being brought to life. So what are some connections? What are some challenges maybe we, we face today that, that Peter's sermon also points to, right? Well, the first thing would be the need for repentance and forgiveness. Um, we, we, we have that same thing today, right? Uh, you don't have to look much farther than at your own hands to see where sin has affected. Whether you're looking at them and you're see, saying, man, I got old. I got a lot of wrinkles. I don't remember there being that many wrinkles on my hand. <laughs> or whether it's you look at your hands and you say, why did I do that thing that I did? That was sin. I need to repent. We need that message of repentance, but we also need the message of forgiveness. That, that I am not just a sinner condemned. I'm a sinner saved by grace. We might also be tempted to think that uh, people were less sinful in Peter's day, right? They didn't have the internet. They, they didn't have access to those, those websites with those things. But that couldn't be farther from the truth because sin is sin. Sin has never changed. The, the, the method of which sin manifests might be different in certain historical contexts. But if I trust the Bible, if I trust James 2.10 then I trust that for whoever keeps the whole law but fails in one point has become guilty of all of it. Every person who's told a lie, every person who's stolen something, which means also not working when your employer was paying you, that's stealing time from your employer. Any person who's ever been angry at someone else has committed murder in their heart. Who's ever looked on, on, on a woman or a man with lust has committed adultery. Broke all of it. The Jewish listeners to this sermon of Peter were just as guilty of, of breaking God's commandments as you and I. For the wages of sin is death. But, Paul writes in Romans 6.23, the free, meaning free to us, the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. We're guilty, but there's life in Jesus. The second connection that we can draw from Peter's sermon is the centrality of Jesus Christ. There's only one way to salvation, Jesus says. Jesus says in John 14, 6, I am the way, I am the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Jesus was at the very center of Peter's message. You might say, well, actually, no, he quoted David a lot. I'm not meaning <laughs> that you have to constantly say what Jesus says to make him the center of a message. What I'm saying is that nothing in his sermon makes sense without Jesus. How often do you look at the engine of your car? Do you pop the hood every single time? Do you, uh, do you decide that you're going to take it apart every day when you go home? Nowadays, that requires probably a doctorate degree with how complicated the engines are. Change your oil. Remove these 16 protective caps. <laughs> and then go in and put it in accessory so that you can change the settings so that it knows what you're doing. Anyway, um, 
No, but the engine is kind of the center of the car. We can say the driver is, you know, but, but no, if you can put a driver in a car with no engine and it, it ain't going nowhere. But if you, put, but, but if you uh, put an engine in a car and you turn it on, you just kind of drop a brick on the accelerator, it'll go, doesn't need you for that. The engine is kind of the center of the car and it, it doesn't work without the engine. The car doesn't work. And so this sermon of Peter doesn't make any sense without Jesus being the way, the truth, and the life. There are a lot of fake saviors out there. A lot of things that you can turn to that might pro- provide you some form of relief. A lot of, uh, a lot of false gospels of spiritual awakening, of uh, being more mindful, of finding peace, of finding prosperity, a lot of false gospels out there. But if we're truly Christians, then Jesus sits at the center of all we do. We don't make sense without Jesus Christ. The next thing we can draw is the role of the Holy Spirit, which frankly on that day was pretty clear, pretty evident. <laughs> All right? The, the, I mean, this was, like, this was like the July 4th of, of moments in church history, right? The fireworks were going off. You saw a lot of things that, I mean, so much so that people are sitting there going, I'm pretty sure they're drunk, right? Like, you're jumping to that. <laughs> The person has a perfect Coptic dialect. They grew up in Galilee, and you're like, mm, uh, a lot of wine, I guess. I don't know. We don't have those experiences now, right? We, we don't get to see that on the scale that we saw there. But God is the same God yesterday, today, and forever. On that day of Pentecost, the works of the Holy Spirit were, were, were obvious, but it's the same Spirit uh, that was in that day as the same one today who brings sinners to life. Uh, Paul writes to Titus in, in chapter 3, verses 5 to 6, He saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to His own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and the renewal of the Holy Spirit whom he poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ, our Savior. There was a special time in the church where things were radical, where things were crazy, where, where it was essentially a hippie commune in the next, ver- the next couple verses. I'm just kidding. It's not like a hippie commune. That's a really bad analogy. But, <laughs> but where, the, where the church gathered and they shared everything because, because they, they, they didn't know how to do the Christian life. But as time went on, God graciously formed his church through the apostles and their writings. I love Romans, one of my favorite books of the Bible, but Paul gives some great examples of how to be a Christian in Romans 12 through 14. And in none of those chapters does he say, by the way, uh, make sure that you have um, 500 people living in your home. He says, exercise hospitality. He says, forgive. He says the things that are really practical for the church. God is the one who saves. In that day, he saved pretty drastically. In our day, he doesn't seem to save as dramatically. 
but it doesn't make it any less God and it doesn't make it any less powerful. Jesus tells Nicodemus, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and of spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh and that which is born of the spirit is spirit. Do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes, you hear its sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. The Spirit gives life, new birth, and he's still working today. He's the one who convicted these hearers of their sin in verse 37. How do I know this, right? I can, they were cut to the heart. How do I know it wasn't just Peter's clever words or, or maybe the circumstances of the person's life? Well, because Jesus says in John 16, 8, when the Holy Spirit comes, he will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. That's what's happening. The Holy Spirit works in the heart of these hearers. And he's the same one today who convicts sinners and brings them to life. Listen, the Holy Spirit can transform as many people as God desires, right? He can transform whole communities. He can transform an entire nation. He can transform the entire world. The Holy Spirit is active. So knowing all this, what are some things that we can infer and apply to our own lives? Well, I've got, I've got two implications and two applications. So two things that we need to kind of store away in the file folder of our head that we go, okay, like I need to remember this because it's evident in this text. And then two things that are, that are more, okay, now I need to do this, right? The imperative, get her done. Um, in the wise words of every redneck everywhere. Um, <laughs> The, fir- the first implication is the importance of Christ-centered preaching and teaching. Peter did set the standard. He gave an example. Uh, by the power of God's Holy Spirit, he recalled and faithfully exposited or, or got the position or truth from Old Testament passages. Peter did not misquote Psalms. He did not misquote Joel. He was given illuminating light to those passages in his mind. Something that's incredible to me. First century Jews knew the Old Testament really well. I can quote maybe five Bible verses offhand, and I'm lucky if I can tell you their chapter and verse reference, okay? I, I, I just, that's, my brain is like, yeah, super great truth, and then just kind of falls out of my ear. That's just the way that it works. Peter had these things come to his mind as he was preaching. But he had also prepared for that moment his whole life. He may not have understood Joel 2 until that moment. He may not have understood what David was saying until that moment. Or maybe the disciples, the apostles had been talking about it. Maybe Jesus had been telling him about it. But it was at this point that he faithfully was proclaiming the gospel, that the Holy Spirit ordered it in that way. Anybody who's ever preached knows that you can write down the most clever illustration, the greatest quote, the most accurate everything, and then you get to that point in your outline and you're like, oh man, that doesn't even make sense. And then you have to 
skip over it because you can either say it and sound like a doofus or you can, or you can move on and then later in the sermon you find that God just miraculously gives you that, mo- that, that little bit of info that you can form into another illustration. Anybody who's ever preached the gospel to someone knows that with all the preparation, that person says the one thing that you don't remember the answer to, or the one thing that stumps you, or the one thing that makes you pause and go, I, 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 uh, uh, <laughs> but it's also in that moment that the Lord is faithful to bring to mind something wonderful that you can say. It may just be, I'm sorry, I don't know the answer to that question. I'd love to follow up with you. Can I come back and see you? Can I give you my number and you can shoot me a text? But God is gracious to those that are Christ-centered. Christ-centered preaching and teaching is extremely important because Christ is the cornerstone of God's people And therefore, we have to put all the weight in our preaching and teaching on him. It's not us being clever, friends. It's about us having Jesus as the engine of our car. The second implication is the power of the Holy Spirit to transform lives and communities. Um, This is something, seriously, you need to file away in the back of your mind. We need to be reminded in this text that the Holy Spirit can transform people. It may not be as quick or as disruptive as it was on the day of Pentecost. There may not be miraculous moments surrounding it. It might even be that you get a phone call from that cousin that you have been praying for for 15 years. And they say, man, you know what? I heard the gospel the other day, and it really it cut me to the heart. And, uh, and I know you're a Christian, and I wanted to ask you questions. And you're just sitting there in your seat going, is this a dream? God, I've been trying for 15 years. I see this cousin twice a year for 15 years, beating my head against everything, and it takes some Joe Schmo to randomly preach the gospel to them, and now they get it? Yeah. Yeah, that's exactly what it took, because <laughs> that was God's plan. I'm not Peter. You're not Jews living around Jerusalem. I wasn't there. You weren't there. John might have been, but <laughs> you're welcome, Jordan. <laughs> I, uh, not, none of us, none of us were there. I just make sure you're awake. <laughs> but none of us were there. But you know who was there? God. God was there. God did exactly as he intended. God is doing right now exactly as he intends. The Holy Spirit can transform lives and communities. Now, a couple applications to do these. If you ever write notes on the back of your uh, bulletin that actually has a notes section, if none of you have ever noticed it, I'll just pretend it was new, okay? I just added it. Uh, but but these, these are the things you want to write down, right? The two things, two, two applications. Number one, share the gospel with others. God is the one who saves. And because he does save, we are supposed to announce the good news of salvation, 
An evangelist is a gospelizer. That's, that's actually literally what the, 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 the word would mean. The euangelion, the good message. A, a good messenger is somebody who announces the good message. It's like the kid standing on the street corner in the 1800s, you know, waving the newspaper, you know, now this, read, the, read this new story, catch up on the news. We're supposed to be giving that good news. And listen, I realize this is difficult. If there is any area in this sermon that punches me hard, it's right here. I am really bad at sharing the gospel with others. I might be good at showing it. I might be good at teaching it. I might be good at, at, at encouraging others to do it. But I'm, I'm not that great. I'm afraid of sounding silly or, or, or uh, maybe sharing the gospel wrongly. I, I've done it, actually. I, I, I gave a... a I, I was doing the, trying to give the gospel to a, a Muslim guy, and I, I told him that the core of the Christian message is repentance because he was screaming at me, and so I told him to repent and be quiet. That was my gospel message. I really messed that one up. <laughs> so, um, <laughs> But we never know what God has providentially been doing in a person's life. We, 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 don't, we don't see past the veil of those few moments we have with people. The old adage, fishing is called fishing for a reason, because if you caught something every time, it'd be called catching. That's, that's, that's true here. Jesus made the apostles fishers of men, not catchers of men. God's the catcher. In this moment, Peter was spurred on by the Holy Spirit. He was prompted to speak. He became an instrument of God's gospel plan for 3,000 people. We never know who might respond to the gospel message. And I would caution you guys, be accurate in what you call sharing the gospel. I, uh, I've had someone share the gospel with me where it was a testimony of God's faithfulness, but there was no gospel. In fact, if I were to draw a gospel principle out of the, the, the thing that this person shared with me, it was that, uh, that, that their life sucked and now they have Jesus and now it's better. There's the gospel, Life sucked, now it's better. The connecting point is Jesus. You know, suck plus Jesus equals better life. There's my mathematical gospel equation there. So be careful. In, in sharing the gospel, what I find best is to take something from my daily meditation of scripture and announce God's gracious mercy and our need for repentance. Um, you can do it in 20 seconds. This morning I was listening to, uh, to the book of Acts, and, uh, and, and in it um, I was reminded of a conversation I had with, with Pastor John about how, how when Jesus tells the apostles to wait, and then they're waiting outside when Jesus goes up, just standing there, it took an angel to appear and say, why are you standing here, doofuses, right? Like, <laughs> he said, wait in Jerusalem, not on the hill. Go... <laughs> If I, if, I went into, uh, if I went into the grocery store and the clerk said, how's it going? I could say, you know, I've been thinking about this thing I read in Acts um, about how God tells uh, the people to wait and, and they, they wait wrongly. And there are so many times that I, uh, that I fail 
to, to listen to what God tells me to do, and I'm just so happy for his grace and his forgiveness and his mercy. Do you, do you know Jesus? <laughs> That's all it takes. God does and will give us the words to speak, much like he did Peter. It's good to have something prepared, though, um, but know that a more natural conversation flows from a reliance on the Holy Spirit alongside preparation. If you have to take out a card and read the Romans Road, the person is going to be, okay, how many more words till we get to the end of this? The second application is to be ready when God acts. Peter could have watched this happen and gone, yeah, that's pretty neat. <laughs> and he wouldn't have been an instrument of God's redemption there. That would have been it. Peter's message and the fact that he preached the message should challenge us to live out our faith in everyday life in a very particular way. Wait. Wait for God. Wait for God to do something. Wait for God to do something and then make sure that you're ready to jump. Uh, you ever watch those survival shows like Bear Grylls and uh, what's-his-face, the weird guy that almost got eaten by the bear the one time? Um, oh, man, I'm going to forget his name or remember his name right after the sermon. But anyway, the, 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 what I love about those survival shows, especially Bear Grylls, is he says in that British accent, I got to jump right now because if I don't, the wind is going to carry me off. And it's like, man, shut up and jump then. <laughs> like, don't tell me why you got to do it now. Just go. But that's a message to me too. <laughs> don't, don't sit here explaining when God says go. Jump out of the stupid helicopter. May we be as bold to live out our trust in God, knowing that we need to be ready to move, to speak, to announce, or whatever it is God calls us to do when he calls us to do it. Commit yourselves to be devoted to Christ. Be challenged by Peter's sermon to be faithful in your interpretation of Scripture, faithful to proclaim the gospel, to trust the Holy Spirit to do his work in you and in others, and be ready when God calls you to move. That's, in essence, Peter's sermon, or at least some principles we can derive from it. Let me pray, and then we're going to have communion and we'll, clo we'll close with a final song. Heavenly Father, probably the worst part in our minds, being, uh, being sinful and uh, stuck in our moments of time, is the, the period of waiting. We wonder what's next. We might even dream of what's next. We might even struggle to uh, comprehend what's next might even panic at, at what's next that we don't even know what's next. But Lord, our anxious hearts need to be reminded of your constants. From, from before the beginning of time to the end of eternity, you are, you will be, and you have been. 
Lord, thank you for uh, giving Peter the words to speak. Thank you for letting him preach the first gospel message. Thank you for cutting to the heart of the people that listened. Thank you for all your activity. Now make us bold to do likewise. In Jesus' name, amen.